Hi, everybody. This is John Montoya. And this is John Parings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition. Today's episode number 22, The Talk. Going down internet rabbit holes. This episode is is really about a conversation that I have very regularly with new prospective clients about, I give them the quote unquote, the talk uh, about information that they're typically going to find or have already found on the internet before they have a conversation with me. And I, I know you have the same thing, John, where by the time people usually get to us, They've, they've either done no research or they've done a lot of research. And the, and the form of that research is very often getting on YouTube. Maybe they looked up different financing methodologies. They maybe learned about velocity banking somewhere. And then it often, then that often leads them to infinite banking. They'll watch 50 YouTube videos about uh, infinite banking. And by the time they, by the time I have a conversation with them, they're usually very full of information and it's not always the most accurate information. And so I have to give them the talk. <laughs> what, uh, is that, is that kind of how you're finding it, John? Yeah. Yeah. So when, whenever I connect with someone for the first time, I always ask them, you know, what they know about IBC, uh, where did they learn it from? Uh, just trying to pick their brain to see how much they know, how much that they've learned that, isn't so to clarify where they need the most help in their understanding and what IBC is all about. There's a, a litany of information out there. And what makes our job so challenging is that a lot of the information out is either partially right or uh, altogether wrong. Um, but there, there's not really one source that provides you with you know, th this is how it's done. This is the way to do it. Other than, you know, the, the Nelson Nash think tank and being able to find a practitioner, which is where people really should go if they want to uh, get the lowdown on what infinite banking is all about. And, you know, talk to someone who is a practitioner with the Institute. Um, that That's really the, the best source. But just the way it happens with information being so readily available, uh, as soon as you get on your phone or in front of a computer, uh, you know, we have to overcome a lot of bad information out there. So that's really what this episode is all about and having the talk and, and clarifying what is true, what is not and, and going from there. Yeah. So this episode will end up being kind of another myths and misconceptions kind of thing, but it's also a little bit of a, a an episode about becoming aware of what's out there. And, you know, the good news is there is a lot of free information to consume and learn about infinite banking concept, whole life insurance, cash value life insurance. But the bad news is, is there's a lot of free info to consume out there. And, and, and the reason that's bad news is because, I mean, from what I've seen, I have a lot of the same com conversations with people. And I'd say 90% of the information is at best incomplete and at worst can be misleading, as you were saying. Why, why don't we jump into it? Let's talk about some of the misleading information that we hear right off the bat when people reach out to us about infinite banking. I think the first misleading part is if if I go out there on YouTube and I look at the the people that are talking about infinite banking, I'd say a majority of them by far 
are not even authorized infinite banking people. So they're, they, they never even bothered to go through the training program that the infinite, the Nelson Nash Institute, infinitebanking.org puts together and explains what we're actually trying to do. And so really what those people are doing is they're just kind of taking the term infinite banking because it does sound cool. And they're just saying, Hey, you can use cash value life insurance to, uh, you know, take out policy loans and, and do whatever, like become rich buying cars, which is, that's not what the infinite banking Institute is all about. We do have certain illustrations in terms of concepts that show how you can use the infinite banking concept to finance purchases and investments in your life. And cars is one of the examples but that's not that's not where the story ends. And so I'd say, you know, first of all, there is a a lot of folks out there that have kind of taken on the term and just kind of use it in the most simplistic fashion. Meanwhile, they're missing some of the greater mission that uh, the Infinite Banking Institute is out there trying to solve, and that is taking control and recapturing the banking function in your life. Yeah, and there's absolutely a correct way to do it. And one of the reasons why you should be looking on the practitioner finders, you want to make sure you're working with a practitioner who is in good standing. Uh, just because uh, someone says that they do infinite banking uh, doesn't mean that they have the green light from the Nelson Nash Institute. Um, sometimes, uh, very few cases, but an advisor can have their authorization revoked, right. which means they've done something to go against what the mission is. And uh, for that reason, they're no longer on the practitioner website. So you do want to make sure that you're working with someone who is in good standing and has their interest aligned with the Nelson Nash Institute and what you're looking to accomplish with IBC. Yeah. And it's super easy to do. You can just go to infinitebanking.org and there's a, a practitioner finder on the website and you can find everyone who is currently in good standing and authorized by the Nelson Nash Institute. And you know, you brought up a good point about correctly designed policies where, you know, well, let me say this first before I even get into correctly designed policies. One of the things that Nelson Nash talks about in the book and one of the conversations that I have even outside of infinite banking is listening to the noise that's out there. So he calls it noise. And, you know, there's a lot of noise out there in terms of, you know, people's financial lives, financial planning, things like that. Well, there's also noise out there as it relates to the infinite banking concepts. And so a lot of the things that are brought up and that we're going to talk about today end up just being noise. And that's what we're trying to filter out. You know, one of the first ones is this idea of a correctly designed policy. I'm here to say that there is no one size fits all correctly designed policy. Yeah. And I think the thing that we really want people to understand is that getting started with IBC is not like going through a McDonald's drive through where you're right. ordering a Big Mac fries. And, you know, this is the way that it needs to be designed. If you're telling your advisor, well, th this is how much I want the minimum to be, and I want the least amount of death benefit. Trust me, we, we, we know how to design an IBC policy, and we're going to design it based off your situation. It's definitely not a menu item that we're just taking orders. We, we want to really understand your situation, what your goals are. A lot of people come to us with the idea that they 
know how to have this design from watching videos. Uh, everybody's situation is different. There, there is a, a trust factor involved, but that's why you reach out to a practitioner who you find through the IBC practitioner finder, and you allow them to do what they need to do to make sure that it's properly set up for what you want to accomplish. Yeah. And just one final thing on that particular topic is, you know, the, the book becoming your own banker, which kind of, you know, really kicked this whole thing off. Um, it was really, it was never designed to be, it was never intended to be an instruction manual. It was meant to put the ideas out there and get people thinking about money and capital in a different way. And then the idea was, let's talk to somebody who knows how to implement this and see how it can be done in specific to your life. Another one is who's the best insurance carrier, you know, so you'll get in touch and they'll ask for, this is going to sound meta, quote unquote quotes. They'll ask for quotes from me for an infinite banking policy because they think that if they go out and shop around with different carriers, they're going to somehow find like a, a, a special deal or the, the cheapest rates or something like that. And that, that really gets away from how everything works. I'm, you know, it's not about how little you can pay, you know, if you had a, if you had a place to put money, that's, you know, tax free, tax deferred grows guaranteed earns dividends, you know, is liquid. Do you want to put as little as, as you could in there or as much as you possibly could in there? And so the, there's a, this idea that shopping around different insurance carriers is, is really important when I've seen research out there where, you know, over a long period of time, it really doesn't matter that much. The, the, the insurance carriers are all working off the same mortality table. So if it's a good, reputable insurance company, you'll be able to set up a, a good infinite banking type of insurance policy. Yeah, be very aware that if you click on something that says best insurance carriers for IBC, mm. it's yeah. clickbait. Right. It's clickbait because that basically is salesmanship. The people who promote a top four top carrier for IABC, there is no resolute one carrier is the best one out there. The best carrier this year, 2020, was not the best carrier two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. There's a pack full of mutual based companies that all take turns. Right. Being, you know, good at what they do, having a, a great product. But ultimately what it comes down to, and this is something that I try to convey to people over and over again, if you're doing infinite banking the right way, you're going to have multiple policies and you're going to have multiple policies with different insurance carriers. So there is no best IBC insurance carrier. There's really a handful of them. And you want to make sure that you have multiple policies set up, just like you hear, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, as you grow this portfolio of policies out, because money needs to reside someplace, you're automatically going to have, or you should have policies with different carriers. So don't buy into the belief that there is one best carrier. There isn't. That's so true. It gets back to the idea of thinking long range. And if we think long range, you know, it doesn't matter what the published dividend rate is on one carrier versus another, you know, because as you mentioned, over a long period of time, they're all going to perform very similarly because they're all working with the same information. Another thing is regarding cash value comes up quite a bit. And this is the idea. And so 
you know, this, this comes from, you know, a little bit of misconception around infinite banking, but it also comes from people who are just against whole life insurance altogether. There's a kind of misconception, and we've talked a little bit about it before that, you know, you have to wait 10 years or five years or 15 years, whatever the number is, before you see any cash value and or before you can take advantage of using policy loans on a, on a pure whole life or even a, a, a policy with paid up additions. And it's simply not true, really. I mean, the initial cash value and the time period you wait before you have cash value a bit available does depend on how the policy is designed. But even with just a straight whole life policy, very often you'll have cash value in the second or maybe third year. But usually with a with a typical policy design for infinite banking where a paid up additions right a paid up addition writer is used, you'll have cash value in the very first year. And depending on how you pay, um, you'll have cash value a- available almost immediately. And once you have around 500 bucks in the policy in 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 the form of cash value uh you can you can use policy loans but i don't necessarily recommend doing that right away and i don't think you would either no no there there it has to all make sense with what uh what you're going to use the policies for and that leads us to our next point which is uh you want to make sure that uh, the funding source matches the funding period, something that we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, A lot of what we encounter out there is uh, short pay policies where people are are coming into this uh, with really only a five or seven year objective. And then that's it. And they're forgetting money is still going to need to reside someplace. Even after they finish funding a policy, uh, you know, in five years or seven years, if it's designed that way, uh, really a person should come into this thinking, how much money am I going to earn in my lifetime and which banking system is it going to run through? Is it going to run through an entity, a banking system that I own and control, or is it going to run through a traditional banking system? And if you start putting it into that perspective, you start to get away from, oh, well, I'm only going to fund the policy for five years. And, and then after that, um, you know, I'll move on to the next great thing. And, yeah. you know, we, we have to help you keep in mind that th- this is a long-term play and you want to design out a portfolio of policies that will allow you to incorporate the money that is passing through your hands and going out the window, never to be seen again. In the industry, they would call it a short pay where you're doing, you know, five to seven to 10 payments, something like that, uh, which means five, seven, 10 years. Um, And I think it's unfortunate because if you really, when you, when you design a policy that way, you're essentially creating a policy that you can no longer put money into right as it really starts to get efficient with cash value. And um, it's a, it's really a short sighted thing where, you know, if you've got, you know, just call it whatever, 20,000, $24,000 a year to put into a policy for five or seven years. Well, if you're 40 years old, why would you want to stop putting $24,000 a year somewhere at just because after five years, it, do, it doesn't really make any sense from a from the idea of you know money having to be somewhere. Do you want it to be in your quote unquote bank or sitting in a regular bank, not earning anything? 
Absolutely. And just to clarify too, there's nothing wrong per se with a five or seven year uh, funded plan. But if you're, if you're going into it with the idea that that's your one IBC plan, we want you to think bigger picture than that. Yeah, that's a good clarification. Um, you know, I think we've both done those type of payments and it's just, but it just depends on where that other person, it depends on how old they are. Um, it depends on, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. But, you know, if someone's, if someone's 25 or 30 years old, I, I have a hard time justifying, you know, a five pay for, for those types of, those types of people. You know, the other thing too, regarding those is a lot of times people look at the the rate of return they're getting on the cash value, you know, creating uh, these short pay policies. And it's true that the internal rate of return is slightly better when you overfund it to the max in the, and, and create a policy where you can only pay, you know, five, seven, 10 times, but it's not that much better. And if you look at your ability to put more in over a longer period of time is going to create a much larger policy over the long run and create much more value for you and, and your family. So let's talk about dividends and some of the clarification that's needed because there's a lot of misinformation or bad information about dividends. Yeah. One of the big ones is a lot of people tend to have this belief that you know the bigger, the, bigger the company, the bigger the dividend. And uh, you've talked about this in the past, and that's simply not true. <laughs> yeah, the the bigger a company is, basically, the the more revenue they're going to have because there's more premium going in, and uh, everything all together just it's it's a larger size. But that has nothing to do with the amount of dividends that you actually receive within your policy. Just to clarify that a little bit more, the dividend rate uh, basically is that percentage of surplus that's going out to all the policyholders. And so that's another thing where what's the best what's the best carrier? And a lot of people go out and they look at the, the, the try to find information on the dividend, but the dividend that gets published is not the dividend that gets applied to the policy. And that's sort of an internal um, calculation that that we're not privy to. Yeah. And I'd also go on to say that the the dividend isn't based off the cash value. Yeah. Right. It's based off of the permanent death benefit. And the more permanent death benefit you accumulate over time, the more dividends you're going to receive. And that's really a beautiful thing about whole life policies, because we have these dividends when they get paid they're they're set up to be automatically reinvested into the policy and it it's it goes towards the paid up additions writer right that's the way right. it gets added back into the policy and what is a paid up addition writer it's a way to accumulate more cash value that's available for you to use but it also purchases additional paid up death benefit at no future cost and remember the more permanent death benefit you have, the more dividend you're going to collect the following year. So it creates this compounding effect where dividends reinvested will keep compounding year after year. The more permanent death benefit you have, the more dividends. So to clear that up, the dividends aren't based off how much cash value you have. It's actually uh, determined by how much permanent death benefit you have. 
Yeah, and I think if if people just understood that cash value is a function of the death benefit, that would clear up a lot of confusion um, for what you know people think that or how people think dividends get get applied. So important to understand is you know every, a lot of people just overlook the what the what you're buying and that you're buying a death benefit and the cash value is just the the present value of that. So it's it's uh, it makes a lot of sense that the dividend would get paid on on the death benefit. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, th- these policies are reverse engineered. What you want to happen is guaranteed to happen. People that are looking at these policies and, and thinking of it strictly as a, as a rate of return type of strategy, it's not. It's, you know, what that guaranteed death benefit is at issue, you're going to get that plus more because of the way the dividends work to be reinvested because you overfund the paid up additions writer. This is guaranteed to work out no matter what. Speaking of guarantees, I think the last point we were going to touch on today is the idea of the guaranteed values, the guaranteed growth. And there is, I think, a a big problem out there where people are using interest rates to describe the guarantees that people are going to get in uh, a whole life insurance policy and they're they're not being very clear on how that interest rate is calculated and they're definitely not being clear on the on the gross interest rate versus the net interest rate and so you'll hear a lot of thing a lot of people talking about a guaranteed four percent rate of return uh, Mm -hmm. on a on a on a whole life insurance policy and first of all we have to understand that we're not getting 4% interest. Life insurance growth is an actuarial calculation. That's number one. Number two, 4% is sort of the reverse engineered, as you mentioned before, the reverse engineered interest rate that you'll see that's gross. Um, And by the way, this is, I'm just pulling this 4% number out. It'll be different for different carriers. But the actual guarantees that you're going to get there's a there's a gross and the and there's a net. This is a huge discussion to have because a lot of you'll see a lot of interest rates that you get out there, even outside of life insurance. Is that gross or is it net? Is it is it net of fees? Is it net of taxes? You know, there are all kinds of things that you can hide inside a percentage rate of return. What I love about life insurance is instead of promising you some number that then they can fiddle with, this is where life insurance ledgers come in where they'll actually show you the actual numbers given that you make all the premium payments according to that schedule they'll show you with numbers exactly what you'll get and then you can back into uh, a guaranteed interest rate calculation based on on those ledgers so what you're saying is a four percent guaranteed rate does not mean that your money is growing at four percent per year that's right. That's a gross, that's a reverse engineered gross rate that then you have to take into account the cost of insurance, um, commissions, you know, all the all the fees and costs of running the business. And you're going to end up with something that's smaller than that, but you will get guaranteed growth every single year. Yeah. And that guaranteed return, what we're talking about there is the stripped down basic structure of a whole life policy where we assume no dividends ever. So great point. If if you were never to receive a dividend 
And that's highly unlikely, but again, dividends are not guaranteed, right? They're going to come from the surplus profit of a life insurance company, which historically they are very profitable, but that guarantee assumes no dividends. And like you mentioned, 4%, if that's the contractual guarantee on the policy, that's 4%. That's a linear growth rate all the way out to age 121. And that is uh, before the cost of insurance. So when you take into account the, the fees, that 4% guaranteed rate over you know, whatever your age is out to age 121, it's probably going to look like two, maybe 2.2% growth rate. It's where we add in the dividends or the life insurance company pays out the dividends. And now you have the, the cumulative, the guaranteed interest that two or 2.2% plus the dividend growth on top of it. That's where it's going to uh, achieve what we're seeing right now, really across the board from all the, the major carriers for IBC, where the growth internally, depending on your age and table rating or just your rating in general, uh, you know, it's going to be somewhere between, let's say, four to five and a half percent per year combined. Currently. Yeah. Currently. And when we when I say currently with with today's low interest rate environment, that's currently what is what is being illustrated. And so it can get better from there. Make sure that you do talk to an IBC advisor. Tell them what your goals are and they'll walk you through the process uh, to get started and they'll help you to see that bigger picture. And that's really, that's really what you have to have. It's, it's so hard to uh, come into IBC and, you know, we, it's funny, we got an email uh, last night about, you know, what is this all about? Can you just give it to me in a nutshell? Well, you know what you have to, yeah, we can do that, but there's also some legwork that you have to do. Pick up a copy of Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. You know, take the time to, to read it. It's 90 pages. If you're struggling to really understand what IBC is all about, even after you talk to an IBC practitioner, the first thing I would ask, well, did you read the book? The, the Nelson Nash Institute has even come out with a uh, video series that I believe you can find on YouTube now, which is IBC Foundations. So there is material out there. We're talking published works and videos uh, through the Nelson Nash Institute. There's information out there that I would highly encourage all listeners, whether they're brand new to IBC or continuing to learn about IBC because they have their first policy, second or third policy, you know, continue to, to take the time to learn more about how infinite banking works because the better educated you are, the, the more use you're going to get out of your banking system, your IBC banking system. But it does require some sweat equity on your part. There's plenty of internet rabbit holes available out there. Uh, we just want to get you going in the right direction. That's a great, a great recap. Do you want to go down rabbit holes or do you want to follow a, a tried and true path to financial education? One of my favorite things about infinite banking and there's a lot of them, but this process of creating your own banking entity, it's logical. The, the question that people should be asking, why am I not doing this? Right. 
Well, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can go to thefifthedition.com. You can uh, schedule an appointment right right with us on there or uh, ask any questions you want. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget to uh, give us a five-star review. If you like the show, let us know. Take care, everybody.